0: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM, Satellite Radio, and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
1: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
0: Today we welcome Craig Lucas. Hi, Craig. Hi. Craig, uh, most recently on Broadway, noted for doing the book adaptation for The Light in the Piazza, currently running on Broadway. Craig has received the Obie for Best American Play for Small Tragedy, the 2003 New York Film Critics Award for the Screenplay, for The Secret Lives of Dentists, a delightful and rather strange film. We'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, he has also uh, created the musical uh, Marry Me a Little along with Norman René. Screenwriting credits include Longtime Kiss," uh, Long Time Companion, uh, Prelude to a Kiss, Reckless, Blue Window. And for our folks in the Puget Sound area, Craig is the Associate Artistic Director of the Intamon Theater in Seattle. Welcome, Craig. Thank you.
1: And most specifically, Craig's with us today because we're here on the occasion of your debut as a film director with your own adaptation of your play, The Dying Gall. So the simple question is: First time movie director, how'd it go? Ah! Ah! It was oh, so <laughs> scary. <laughs> but how did it come about? I mean, was it was it a case of you were going out looking to make this film? No, that I think would have been foolish because
2: it's. Uh, the material is uh, shocking and uh, dark and uh, it would have been crazy for me in my 50s to be looking to direct my first movie. You know, it's a lot of money and to put the somehow the leap of faith that it took for these folks to say, oh, he can direct this movie. I mean, it it's crazy, just crazy. And I, uh, they contacted me and said they wanted to make this movie and they were considering letting me direct it. I, I think a lot of it had to do with Campbell Scott, who is one of the producers at Holdigger Films, the folks who made this, and Secret Lives. Uh, and uh, a certain amount of it had to do with Alan Rudolph, uh, the man who directed uh, Secret Lives of Dentists. He saw some of my stage work and he called up the producers of this movie and said, You should hire Craig, he's a real director. Uh, I called Alan after the first day of shooting, and he said, "So yeah, it's like crack cocaine, right? <laughs> right?
0: Mm-hmm. Right?" Well, may- maybe for our, our listening audience, you can just tell us a little bit about how you developed the storyline, uh, the dying story gall, what that, what it's all about, it and your, your play adapted out to a movie.
2: Well, the, I know I have to say it was adapted from the play, but I, I, I really tried to rethink it. My, I've I've tried to adapt plays before into films and it's not terribly satisfying you know because you're building something you've already built but with new materials and trying to have it result in something that can be apprehended in uh, the same way the play was is not fun it's it's not you're not necessarily learning something new you're you're, you're 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 retreading so i didn't want to do that with this i threw the play sort of away knowing that it would exist in my unconscious and r- took the basic story elements and thought them through from the point of view of a camera and what a camera can accomplish
0: but it's just still the same basic storyline there are many
2: different Elements in the movie from the play. Uh, some of the major uh, s- storyline uh, aspects are completely different, if not opposite.
0: Well, it's basically about a three-way relationship: a yes, husband, it is. wife, and a, and a screenwriter.
2: Yeah, and the play was about a four-way relationship: with a psychiatrist who was also in the story that I decided to excise from. The M-
0: Maybe just give us the Reader's Digest version of what the storyline is. It's
2: about a writer who is grieving for his lost lover uh, recently dead. Uh, this is 1995 before the protease inhibitors and the antivirals came along. He's written a script uh, that in some ways memorializes and reflects that relationship, and a studio offers him a million dollars to uh, rewrite it as a heterosexual relationship. He becomes romantically sexually involved with the producer at the same time as he becomes deeply connected to the producer's wife, becomes her best friend, and uh, all three of them take a series of very small steps, each one a kind of a lie, a self-deception or a deception of one's loved ones, and ultimately it, it is out of the control of all three of them, and it sort of hurtles forward like a snowball rolling down a hill, and it does not...
1: And, well, <laughs> but we won't give that too much of that away, but in, in rethinking it, you certainly had opportunities, you know, as a playwright, I certainly hear from other playwrights that you're constantly thinking of, well, how many scenes can it have, how, you know, can they build these sets, can they do this? You certainly had more opportunity when you were rethinking the work in terms of the spaces that you could work in, the places that this could be happening did that open up the writing in a way, or, or did you write it first and then as a director figure out how?
2: No, how... I had to I had to conceive of the story. How would I tell it from the camera? A play takes place in a fixed proscenium and everything inside the proscenium moves. A movie is a, a, a moving proscenium, you know, which can uh, show two inches of a hand or it can show the entire desert from above. Um, that Freedom to show anything you want has to be somehow embodied in your mind and your imagination as you begin to write a screenplay. So every one of those rooms and places and uh, uh, you know scenes without dialogue, of which there are quite a few in the movie, have to be envisioned as being as much. I mean, I mean, for instance, when when we went to Jeff and Elaine's house in the uh, the play. Nothing changed on stage. I mean, a chaise lounge came in maybe and a couple of plants. But you had to glean from the behavior and the the words that this was the home of very, very, very wealthy people. But I didn't have to do that in the movie. Nobody had to say anything. In fact, the house is never even commented upon. No one even says, what a nice house.
0: Because you see it. On you point.
2: see it. And it's clearly a $20 million house, mm-hmm. which is what it is, you know. And it, it, and that says so much about what is available to these people, what kinds of things they can do and get away with.
0: Well, where did the original concept come from when you created the play years ago, before the movie?
2: Well, you know, it all always comes from your imagination. You sit down and you think, well, now what in the world can I do? What can I tell that'll make people sit up and pay attention? And I had a commission from Hartford Stage, from Mark Lamos to write a new play, and I thought I'll write a small one this time. I'll do four characters, sort of a unit set. And I'd just come out of a couple of years of writing in Hollywood, uh, and I had recently lost my lover. And so those two things uh, conjoined... Uh, in my imagination and then that was all that I really took from from my life and I set out to, and I was also very interested in the internet at that point, it was the first time I had uh, email in 1994, 5, 6 uh, I was intoxicated by it actually especially once I was grieving, it was one of the few places I could go and say what I was feeling and people wouldn't try to fix it you know when you're with your family and your loved ones they don't like to see you suffer so they want to take it away from you, they want to uh, Stop you from crying, whereas on the internet um, other people who were grieving were welcoming my grief, so it was it was a, a kind of ongoing palliative that i, I uh, you know i' was just reading Joan didion 's book uh, The Year of Magical thinking and the, the the insanity that she talks about that that grievers Go through uh, is so beautifully described in that book. I, I've never seen anybody do it before in prose. Uh, I, you know, I've tried to show it in the movie—a kind of grief that is like the mother and the Bacchae. You know, that she's she's done it's it's irreparable horror. You know, she rips her son's head off, but uh, he's this man has ended his boyfriend's life, and perhaps he did it prematurely. You know, um, that's the dread that he
1: lives with. As I watched the movie, I couldn't help but think back on what I believe was your first produced screenplay, namely Longtime Companion, which at the time it was done there was a lot of comment about this was the first Hollywood film, not a big studio film, but the first Hollywood film of any kind um, that was dealing with AIDS and whether some of the the theme of having to change your art came out of any experiences you'd had back with that film, or any of your subsequent work, having to change it for commercial palatability.
2: Uh huh. Well, actually, my first produced screenplay was *A Blue Window*, which was filmed in sixteen oh. millimeter for American Playhouse, and a beautiful little film that Norman made his directorial Norman René, film a
1: long time. Collaborator, collaborator.
2: Uh, so Long Time was the second, and it's not a Hollywood movie; it's a New York movie. Mm-hmm. We never set foot in Hollywood. I should have said theatrical. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was public broad. You know, it was PBS. Mm-hmm. It was American Playhouse. It was back in a time before Jesse Helms and Ronald Reagan intentionally defunded art in America, and you know we can wonder why, but I I think it's rather evident why. The arts are one last bastion of the First Amendment. As every radio station, you know, a commercial radio station, profit-run radio station becomes censored by these right-wing loonies, uh, it becomes less and less possible to say what you think and be heard. You know, now if one protests... When I was a young man, when you protested, it was on the news. Now if you protest, you are made to be so far from the people in power that you literally don't exist for the rest of the world. When the, you, know, you know that the largest demonstration in the history of the world took place over over the war in Iraq? The largest international demonstration ever. George Bush said... I don't make decisions based on uh, popularity, you know, something about, you know, like the little, little demonstration. I mean, for him, it didn't exist because no one in his realm actually looked him in the face and said, the whole world is saying that you are immoral. He didn't have to hear that. So now all these nice Iraqis get to, you know, die and burn up and have their families shot up uh, because our electronic media did not tell the truth. You know, this whole thing about the saint of Ju- Judith Miller, I think it's so interesting. I mean, she's part of the reason we went to war. I hate Judith Miller. I think she should She, I, I think she's partly responsible for the deaths in Iraq because she made the New York Times present something as truth that was not true. That wasn't really the answer to your question, was it? But <laughs> I, I realized I, I, I was I a little mad question about question it. But <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take you back.
1: Have you been in situations where it's been dangled in front of you that if you'll change your work, it can get more exposure or more acceptance?
2: Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, uh, when you write for a studio, they're keeping their eye not just on the story, but on... A worldwide audience. You know, they, they show their movies in Indonesia where no one speaks any English. So, so, so there has to be a certain level of simplicity that that can be, you know, comprehended by uh, a very wide demographic. That's how those movies make so much money. Um, so – and that's their goal is to make these vast sums of money. And
0: God love them. You know, I, I would that I knew how to do that. In, in a capitalist society, they're in business to make money. That's great. Whether it be – here in this country, internationally, DVDs, whatever. I have no
2: problem with any of that. You know, my movies have actually made money. They haven't made hundreds of millions. But that isn't the kind of imagination I have. I'm not uh, Steven Spielberg. You know, if I knew how to write a movie like Jaws or Close Encounters and I could make that movie, I probably would do it. You know, I more power to him. Uh, But my imagination tends to a, a certain level of complexity, and uh, I like movies where you don't know what's going to happen, where the music doesn't tell you how to feel, where the character's behavior is multi-determined. I like art that reflects life. You know, it's sort of interesting that uh, yesterday and the day before John Banville got lambasted here in New York for his wonderful book, The Sea, because there are words in it that are not in common parlance. Why isn't it a gift for someone to write a book where you have to keep opening up the OED and looking up these words? Why would that be a bad thing? Why characterize that as show-offing, you know, show-offy? Why not call that challenging someone who assumes you are smart enough to look up a new word?
0: (laughs) Or that that you know it to begin with.
2: Or perhaps, yes. Maybe. (laughs) Perhaps. I mean, I love reading John Banville for this very reason. But – So I was asked at various times to take a character and make them less uh, dark or less uh, internally contradictory. People, People live with contradictions. You know, a lot of progressive people have money, and really their interests should be represented by the Republican Party. Why is that so? You know, how does that happen? Or how does it happen that someone like my father, who has very little money, should support a president who is taking his money from him, you know, daily. Why did all those people in Kansas vote for this clown?
1: So let me come off. You, you mentioned contradictions, and while this isn't quite a contradiction, I think it would be very interesting, particularly for the listeners of this station, to know that in your earliest days in theater, you were not the the multi hyphenate, hyper articulate playwright, screenwriter, director. But you were a Broadway guy in the chorus. <laughs> and we can actually somewhere hear your voice on Sweeney Todd and 20th Century and, and other shows, uh, Shenandoah as well. Um, how did you make the journey from being an actor and, and in some major musicals to creating certainly your first show, Marry Me a Little? Uh, I went to
2: Boston University and studied acting in the School of Fine Arts, but I also studied uh, poetry with the couple of people on the faculty at that time, Ann Sexton and George Starbuck. Uh, so I came to New York wanting to both write and perform. I don't think I was really much of a performer, frankly, but I had a big, brash, loud voice, So I got cast in Broadway musicals, which was an incredible boon to me. And I was subjected uh, and... uh, uh, Subjected is the wrong word. I was exposed to a world that I didn't know. I grew up in very safe, Republican, white, racist, uh, anti-Semitic, right-wing suburb of Philadelphia, where I couldn't wait to get out. (laughs) (laughs) And here I was suddenly meeting people who were out of the closet, who were vocal, who were unafraid to be... uh, in certain regards, quite iconoclastic. I was an iconoclast in the chorus, in that I was the guy, you know, in the basement at Sweeney Todd when I wasn't on stage, who was always reading. So I was the funny nerd who was who was always reading. Um, books were kind of my salvation. And what happened was, I uh, I had a, some kind of a, a snapped the, the contradictions in me between what. I felt I needed to do to make my mother happy, which was to be a performer and, and straight, <laughs> by the way, and what I needed to do to be me, which was to be a writer and to be gay, those things came into some kind of psychic. I didn't know how to resolve them. It was really not an easy time, and I, committed, I tried to commit suicide.
0: This is at what point in your life? I was
2: 25, and I was in a coma for four days. Mm. And my family came to New York, and it wasn't clear that I was going to survive. And when I came out of the coma, I was not released from St. Vincent's Hospital until I was uh, told to see a a therapist. And and, and, uh, and it was arranged for me to see a therapist. And that process and that woman, who I will thank to the end of my days, Connie Weinstock, uh, saved my life. She said, you know what? You're in a lot of trouble, and I can see it. I know I see the trouble and you need to come here as often as possible as much as you could afford. And so 20th century and Sweeney Todd paid for my psychoanalysis. Hmm. And I went for a long time three times a week and then twice a week and you know many many years I saw that woman for over 17 years and then I saw someone else for another 10 years. So that's 27 years on the couch. <laughs> wow. Uh, or something a- approaching that. And If you've done it, you know you are suddenly presented with the parts of yourself that you have never witnessed. It's like you've been living in one part of your house and you didn't even know there was a basement and an attic and a wing and all these – a library and that's the unconscious. And by coming to terms with and recognizing first that I had an unconscious and then beginning to accept what was there and to listen for it – uh, I was able to sort of save myself from uh, i think a real path of destruction. I loved drugs I loved indiscriminate and anonymous sex i 've had sex with you know probably at least a thousand people you know i exposed. i was very r- reckless with myself i uh, uh, i I was trying to destroy myself I thought I was bad uh, I thought all of the things that you see that are here now were all bad you know that i 'm soft that i 'm that i 'm feminine you know that um i was am thoughtful about that i'm not republican <laughs> that i don't like war or uh American foreign policy, you know, uh, uh, that I think our money is all spent on the wrong things. All these aspects of myself, which were there when I was a child. I mean, I told my parents at nine I was an atheist. And at 11, I said I was a Marxist. They didn't know what to make of me. I mean, my father was in the FBI, for crying out loud. Um, A a,
0: a Republican in the FBI? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just so we understand the background you're coming from. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I,
2: I barely met a Democrat until I was in college. And I barely met, I thought... A Jew
0: until I was in college. How about gay people?
2: It turned out, well, I didn't know any gay people until
0: college. Well, you didn't realize you knew any.
2: Right. Now, I I mean, I ran into my math teacher at a gay bar in New York and I screamed, Mr. Kurtz, and it was like (laughs) one of the funniest scenes. It all made sense. Suddenly, no wonder everyone was always making fun of him. He was just a big girl, Uh, a very, very funny and wonderful man. uh, I've sort of lost, I guess, the, the thread well, of
0: all of that.
1: You were taking yeah. us through kind of how you made the transition from being a performer yes. into beginning to create pieces of theatre. It was difficult little,
2: because I had mean. to separate from my mother, whom I adored. We spoke on the phone every day until I was 30. Uh, and then eventually I, I realized that I could not live the life that she wanted me to live for herself. She had wanted to be a performer Uh, She didn't want the world to know that she was a Jew. She wanted everyone to think that she was a member of the mainline, you know, wasp world. And I was living all of that out. I was hiding being gay. You know, uh, I was hiding that we were essentially Jewish. Uh, It was all about hiding and secrets. And so therapy, in bringing out those secrets and in uh, somehow finding a, a way to live with these contradictions, I realized that I preferred writing to performing, that I, I I had more to say, I had more to offer as a writer. Uh, I didn't at that point think of directing because I, I found a colleague who was such a wonderful director, Norman Renee that it, there was no reason for me to, to even pursue that. But in the wake of Norman's death, I, uh, in addition to working with other wonderful directors, I also learned that I had a, a some kind of a, you know, a aptitude for it, first in the theater and now in movies.
0: Well, as I understand it, the the, the storyline of The Dying Gaul, your, your new film that's out now, um, deals with telling the truth and being honest. It sounds like after 27 years on the couch of therapy, you're telling the truth, being honest. You, you have a voice as a playwright. Is going from the age of 25, the attempted suicide, to now, is this all part of you now coming out over the years in, in, in your work?
2: I think that's a great question, and, and it must be so. I I still struggle with it. I don't have the best boundaries. I mean, I you know as you saw earlier, I, I'll suddenly start f- foaming at the mouth about the Bush administration, and it's hard for me to let go of that horse's tail once it starts going because I'm so I'm so angry and I'm so frightened for America and for the Constitution and for the whole idea of democracy because I think these people are, are willing and capable of. Uh, imposing martial law. They certainly weren't above having a coup. I mean, when you, when you have the Supreme Court deciding who the president is, that's a coup. That's what we, When that happens in Chile, we shoot them. So my truth-telling is bound up with things that are not necessarily very safe for me to say. You know, in the past, when I have uh, criticized the government, I have been audited the next day you know, by the IRS. That's not uncommon. You know, they don't like it, and they can get back at you. It's not benign. You know, we may have the First Amendment, but speaking up does not come at no cost, as you all know. Uh, Bill Maher lost his job for suggesting that sacrificing one's life was not cowardly. Now, it doesn't take like a rocket scientist to see that he was saying the truth, but it was too upsetting for people to hear that because what those courageous people did was heinous and despicable. And there again, a contradiction, you know, uh, and he lost his job for it. I have friends who went to jail in the 50s for speaking their minds.
0: You you said before when you were in college you got roles in musicals because you had a loud voice. You meant in terms of volume. I did. It sounds like you have a loud voice in another sense now. <laughs> uh, metaphorically, you, you do have the pen. You do have the stage.
2: I'm so privileged. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to have an audience because I feel it is very, very rare. There were years in my life where I went to a 9-to-5 job, you know, and was someone's secretary. Years and years and years. And it's so soul-numbing and, uh, you know, when you have a job that is drudgery, uh, I n- recognize now that I'm like the luckiest guy on earth. When people say the life of a writer is hard, I just say, oh, shut up.
0: Compared to You're, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: You're your own boss. You get to be with your family at home if you want. Uh, okay, your income is going to be unsteady, and you may have to take some work that you don't want. But what you know, the difference between writing a for television that you're not very interested in and you know working at Starbucks or worse you know in a coal mine uh, I, I'm like the luckiest person on earth watch
0: what will you say about Starbucks XM has a Starbucks <laughs> channel channel 76 is our star, Starbucks I have money channel. in Starbucks <laughs> okay. I and my boyfriend <laughs>
2: invested in Starbucks like in the second year and, and uh, it was a very good thing to do <laughs>
1: Craig as we talk about the development of your voice it's very apparent seeing the progression of your plays over time, that the political passion that you speak of and indeed the anger comes out in, in in many of those plays. So I'm very curious as to how you then approached such a gentle story as A Light in the Piazza.
2: Well, every story has its own uh, heart and spine, and that story belongs to Elizabeth Spencer. You know, She wrote this novella in the 50s, uh, late 50s, And it's about something that I found powerful and worth investing years in, which is letting go of one's children and letting go of one's parents. That's, you know, that's the theme is letting go parents and and children uh, in, in, you know, in the wake of love and terrible mistakes that people make. Uh, and Adam's music is so incredibly moving and, and uh, you know, remarkable. There's no one like him. It would have been a, a, a violation of the material if I had turned it into some kind of, you know, if we, we'd made it about McCarthy or if, you know, we'd made it about... Uh, you know, uh, incest or something—it would have been a violation of the story. And even now, though my—you uh, know—my plays have become more political, I suppose, or, or as you say, darker. I still feel that the primary job is to entertain people, to give them a story that takes them on a journey where they come out of the theater going, "God, I'm so glad I'm alive. It's incredible to be alive." You know.
0: Well, you you mentioned Elizabeth Spencer, who wrote the original book upon which Life in the Piazza is based. She's still very much alive. She sure is. She's Uh, (laughs) here. She's coming to New York on Friday. Is she? Okay. Well, uh, did you collaborate with her in any way? Did you just take her book off by yourself and work on it, or was there some interchange between you?
2: Well, we began to speak uh, early on, Elizabeth and I, and, and we were kind of smitten with each other. She's a absolute delight uh all of her work is is extraordinary uh and then when she saw the premiere out in Seattle which I also directed uh she had lots and lots of thoughts and they were good you know so we listened to Elizabeth at every turn uh uh, she's still outspoken about things you know that she feels and I thought we would be ignoring her at our own peril because it's her damn story you know
0: well how did you now you were the associate are the associate um artistic director of the Intiman and that's where the light in the piazza the play the, the musical was developed Yeah that's how how I how, it how, how, there. how did you decide to do that in the first place
2: Well um, Adam asked me to listen to the music cuz he'd been working with a couple other uh uh book writers. And things hadn't, for whatever reason or another, they hadn't gelled. So he asked me to listen to the music. He was thinking of abandoning the project. And I said, you can't do that. These songs are too unbelievable. And I loved The Light in the Piazza. I loved it when I first read it. When I was like nine, I loved it. Uh, You know, it was one of those things like To Kill a Mockingbird, where you read about parents and children and when you're a kid and you think, literature! Here's somebody who's going to get me out of my crazy house and take me to a new world. (laughs) Uh, So at, he invited me to join him, and we we worked on it uh, first at a, a Sundance uh, thing in Wyoming called Ucross, where they take a lot of artists and writers. And we, we worked there for a couple of weeks in the dead of winter. And then we went to the Sundance Theatre Institute in, in the summer, thanks to Robert Blacker, and worked on the show there with a brilliant dramaturg uh, from Ireland. Uh, and then I suggested we do it. I I, I called the folks at Intimon and I said, you know, this show, it's intimate, it's small, it's a jewel, and we should probably not do it in a big theater first off. Would you guys be interested? And they said, sure. And Adam and I had strong feelings about how the play should be done. So for the first production, we agreed I would direct it just so that he could see what he wanted to see, and and the same for me. Um, and I like working out there, you know, in Seattle. They don't. They go to the theater less often. There's less to see. It's not a glut of theater. So there's a kind of gratitude for it that you do, certainly don't experience in New York because every night there's a thousand things to miss in New York, mm-hmm. you know. So there's that awful jaded thing.
0: So when you were developing, was the idea always to bring it to New York eventually?
2: Not necessarily. We thought for a while about just touring the country with it and doing it to other theaters. But Andre Bishop and Ira Weitzman from, the, from Lincoln Center saw it in Chicago and uh, and in Seattle, uh, Ira. And uh, they said, would you like to do it at Lincoln Center? And we went and looked at the two spaces. I think they were thinking of giving us the, the Mitzi Newhouse, the little one downstairs where Wendy's play is playing now, Wendy Wasserstein. Uh, and it, we, there was no place to put the orchestra. So Andre, to his credit, went, well, there's Upstairs, <laughs> which is a huge theater. I mean, it's immense
1: you, you mentioned in the course of this that you directed it originally. Of course, Bartlett Scherr has directed the production that we have here in New York yeah. now. That stepping away for you, was that difficult? or And, and in that transition, what did Bart bring to Oh, the you production? know, uh, Bart and I have worked together so much. I was the advocate for Bart. You
2: know, if I was not going to direct it, I felt that Bart should do it. And the nice thing about Bart was that he... You know, he wanted to know what I thought, and uh, he kept a certain percentage of what I'd done. So, the, you know, the staging is, is is a you know, it's large. The set is all his, uh, but uh, it was perfect. Uh, I was not happy with the way uh, I was replaced. Adam didn't. I, I wasn't happy with the way that happened, but I w- was very happy to step aside. Mm-hmm. That was a good a good thing. And Bart has directed my newest play, which we may do next year at the
1: public. And uh, that play is? It's called Singing Forest. Which was at the Long Wharf yes, and also, also at, at the Intamon. Intamon God, Lessies. you know it all. Right? That's well, very impressive. Well, we, I can't We, we have listeners remember. around the country, so we need to make sure we, we're touching every base. Yeah,
2: that was a good experience. I, I loved working on that with Bart. He's, he's a brilliant director. He's, he's, he's the finest director I know. Well, one of two. I know two... I know lots of great directors, but uh, Bart Shear and Mark Wing-Davy are the two finest stage directors, I think, that, that are working today, in, in English anyway.
0: Well, you alluded before to Elizabeth Spencer having seen the show at the Intiman and suggesting some changes. How has the show changed in its transition from Seattle to New York?
2: We toyed a lot with where to reveal to the audience the, the truth about the daughter and her her, her, her situation. You know, which is unique because it's a. Uh, uh, if anyone has not seen the light in the piazza and does wish to see it, don't listen.
0: <laughs> in about thirty seconds. Yeah. Because she's
2: brain damaged. She's been kicked in the head and uh, by a horse, and brain damage, of course, manifests in so many different ways. It's just it can it can y- you can not you can lose the ability to feel empathy, and nothing else can happen. Your mind can develop in all ways, and we decided that this girl remained, insofar as her ability to deal with stress and complex situations, she remained a 10-year-old, and that all other aspects of her psyche uh, went forward. She's a 26-year-old. Of course, Ben Brantley, as usual, didn't get it and didn't understand that it was brain damage and not mental retardation. Uh, But, you know, it's a real thing, and uh, it's such an interesting dilemma because it's hard to let go of one's children, whether they're 10 and they're going off to camp, or whether they're 26 and they're going off to get married. And it's hard to let go of one's parents. Or As you can see from my experience, it was very hard.
0: Well, in the in the original book, The Lightning Piazza, in yeah. the film, and in now this, the current stage version, does that point of discovery occur at the same point or at different points?
2: Different, absolutely. I've never seen the movie, so I don't know where it happens in the movie. But uh, in the book, she reveals it on the second page.
0: It's interesting that you never saw the movie.
2: You know what? I didn't even know about it when I started working on the show uh, with Adam. And then when he told me about it, he said, you know, it's not its not said to be so wonderful. Though some people, it's their favorite movie. So go figure. Um, you know, everybody loved Life is Beautiful. And I thought anything called Life is Beautiful should be put away and out of sight. Okay. Um, sorry. Um uh, we felt theatrically that it was more interesting to be in the position of the Italians, to be looking at this girl and not knowing what was wrong. And then, as you know, as you, if you've seen the show, you know Signor Sen- Nacarelli knows something's wrong. He just can't figure out what it is. It comes, <laughs> it
0: comes fairly late in the storyline, and it does. Play,
2: and uh, yeah. so we, you know, you're in both, you're on both sides of the of the of the the conundrum, the Italian side which is a passionate one and an incredibly generous one. And uh, on the American side, which is, though it's a passionate one, it's also withheld and waspy and, uh, you know, secrets are bad and you don't tell the truth about painful things, particularly in the 50s. Uh, so it, it, we just toyed with it. We played with it. There's a new song in New York that was not in, in, even in Chicago. Wh- which song is that? Uh, Il Mondo, the, mm-hmm. the song that Fabrizio sings in Italian. So pretty, so incredible. I love working with Adam. I've never, ever, ever had a better time collaborating with someone. Uh, right as a writer, you know, I would, I would just do it again in a second.
0: And for those few who don't know, Adam Gettle has uh, won the Tony most recently in this past June for his delightful score to *The Light in the Piazza*, which did win six Tonys overall.
2: How about that?
0: How about that? And it's running now through March. I guess it's been extended several times. Yeah. Victoria Clark still starring in it. Yes, at uh, Lincoln Center, the Vivian Beaumont. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would encourage folks to go see it.
1: And in the meantime, Craig. people around the country are going to get the opportunity to see Craig's work with Dying Gaul, which is going out uh, on a slow release pattern across the country, playing few major cities right now and more to come
0: in movie theaters, not in, in movie theaters, not in th- regular legit theaters. Craig Lucas, thanks so much for being with us today in Downstage Center.
1: I'm very uh,
2: grateful that you did this. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Craig. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman,
1: reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
0: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you.